Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, my interview with our friend Adi Barkin, who just launched a video series on healthcare featuring interviews with the Democratic presidential candidates, and whose new book, Eyes to the Wind, comes out Tuesday. Uh, but first, we got a lot of news to cover, from all of Trump's latest corruption to his canceled Taliban get-together, to new 2020 polling that shows the top three Democratic candidates pulling away from the pack ahead of this week's debate. Uh, also... We have a new Crooked Minis for the month of September, and it's called State of Conspiracy. Hosted by Professor Catherine Olmsted, an expert in conspiracy theories, this series will look at the rising popularity of political and anti-government conspiracies and how the Trump administration has contributed to their rise. Check it out. Finally, our schedule this week is a little different with the big debate on Thursday night, so our regular Thursday pod will move to Friday for a post-debate super pod with uh, me and Tommy and Dan. Uh, on Wednesday, we'll be doing a Q&A live stream on our YouTube channel. And on Thursday night, we'll be doing another live group thread, all of us, that you can catch on our YouTube channel. Uh, make sure you're subscribed there at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. You can get the live stream. You can get the group thread. All mm. kinds of good stuff there. I didn't agree to do any of this. Tommy did not agree I'm to any of this. About We're still in negotiations time. with Tommy. <laughs> uh, and love it, Calling you're... off the meeting. You can't do it. <laughs> and love it, you're joining us today from New York. You're not even here. No, I'm in I'm in New York City. What's happening there? Why are you there? You have a show yeah, or something? We have Radio City on Friday night. There are a precious few tickets left at this point. We have Stacey Abrams, Jesus and Miro, a bunch of really great guests. Alyssa wow. Master Monaco, Wyatt Sinek, Dulce Sloan. Jam-packed. Jam-packed. <laughs> Can't wait. Cool. Okay. So there's a lot of important news we're going to get to, but uh, before we do... We just we need to point out that the president of the United States has now spent more than a full week complaining that the media correctly reported that he spread false information when he said that the state of Alabama might be hit, quote, much harder than anticipated by Hurricane Dorian. In response, Trump attacked multiple media outlets and journalists by name, including a bizarre video he posted on Twitter just after midnight on Saturday that involved the weather map he doctored with a Sharpie, a cat, a laser pointer, and the CNN logo. So Dan and I almost forgot to mention this stupid story on Thursday's pod, but when I saw the Washington Post story about how the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, uh, which is the parent agency of the National Weather Service, warned their staff, put out a public, put out a statement, warned their staff not to contradict the president's false information and publicly disavowed the completely accurate information released by their own Birmingham office. I started thinking that um, maybe this story does matter. Uh, what, what, Tommy, what do you think? I think it matters uh, when a government agency is browbeaten by the president of the United States and his political hacks not to put out uh, information about a potential natural disaster that may or may not impact their life and safety and health. Yeah, that's kind <laughs> of the nightmare scenario where George Orwell, 1984, we have a president of the United States whose ego is so fragile that he can't be corrected uh, when he tweets the wrong thing. It's insane. Yeah. And like, it's it's kind of funny that this is all coming on the heels of his rage about the whole lost summer narrative. I mean, he just pissed away another week talking about whether or not a storm would hit Alabama. He just can't let it go. Yeah. Love it. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think with with moments like this, you're reminded that with Trump, you're either honest or you're implicated. You know, when the president says something false demonstrably, obviously false. And then you are asked, did the president say something false? Or if you're called by worried citizens in Alabama about whether the president said something false, you have to decide what's more important, telling the truth or staying out of the fray. There's no way to, to, to choose between the two. You're either complicit 
or you're honest. And, you know, we've seen countless politicians choose to not pick that fight because it's easier. And now we're seeing Noah do the same. And, you know, it's it's this this constant threat. It's it's this constant reality with Trump that things are both silly and very dangerous, you know, and we 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 struggle because both of those things can be true. It's he can he can kind of it's like author, authoritarian improv. You know, he kind of accidentally stirs up these incredibly dangerous uh, 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 forces, this idea of anything I say is true, and if you go against me, you're not telling the truth, you're part of the problem, you're the enemy. And the, the scariest thing we have learned over the last few years is how easy it was for someone who is disorganized and undisciplined and ultimately venal and craven and not out for any particular ideological purpose can cow so many people by sheer force of his personality, by sheer force of his willingness to pick every single fight, to not let any pitch go by. Yeah, I mean, people reported, well, the Washington Post reported that, uh, you know, Trump was the one who um, doctored the map himself. Big surprise. Uh, he was the one, he, the, the, he was the one who held the Sharpie. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people have noted that that's illegal, that it's illegal to yeah. falsify a weather map. And the reason, the reason it's illegal, the reason there's that law in the first place is because it can put people's lives at risk, right? Like, the, we... This actually matters to people. Like we have to be able to trust the information that our government provides, especially in times of crisis, especially in uh, in the midst of a natural disaster. And now we can't trust that information because we are at the whims of a narcissistic sociopath who not only lies to us himself, but now tries to pressure and force and bend the rest of the government to his will. I mean, like. These the, the the forecasters in the Birmingham office, they said there's just a story out today um, because the na- the head of the National Weather Service said that the Birmingham forecasters who basically put out a tweet that said Trump is wrong were absolutely correct in doing so. And the reason that they put out a tweet, they actually didn't mention Trump in the tweet. They just said, oh, by the way, there's no forecast that's going to hit Alabama at all because all these worried people in Alabama are calling are calling up the weather service there and they're all worried. And Tommy, you and I were talking about this, but like there's like local weather forecasters in Birmingham quoted as being like, I had to stand up here and say that this was wrong. I mean, this is to your point, love it. Like you're making like local weathermen in Birmingham choose sides. <laughs> he, he's literally asking us to concede that the sky is not blue and that it is in fact filled with storm clouds and hurricane winds, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it, it is, it, it's insane. I mean, well, there's also the fact that he canceled his visit to Europe to commemorate World War II because he had to stay behind to monitor the storm, right? And what we know he did instead was play golf. So maybe he tweeted uh, factually inaccurate information or at least dated information that suggested Alabama might get hit with high winds because he just forgot got the updated information he learned or maybe it was because he was dicking around on the golf course and he just tweets with reckless abandon and put out something that was wrong either way like the fact that he is now engaged the media and washington and the weather service in a six-day debate over this issue is infuriating and there's there's an element of this that is it's so small and it's so petty that it's like you can't believe we're still talking about it but there is a far more fundamental principle at stake here which is that we can't trust literally anything that comes out of his mouth and god forbid there is a terrorist attack or something truly truly awful that happens no one will believe what he says and meanwhile he's utterly distracted from the actual effort to help people who were just hammered by this storm uh, in the Bahamas and, you know, the things coming up the, the eastern seaboard. So, like, it's 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 just it's so frustrating. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. To, you know, he was staying he stayed home from Europe to work on the hurricane, which he didn't do because he has no work ethic. He has no discipline, no attention span. But if you introduce a personal grievance, like a little slight or an insult, mm-hmm. he is that gets him going. I guess he is dedicated. He's like a dog. He he, he is a dog who latches onto this. He runs this. I mean, he is he is the like for a guy that cares about nothing. He is the Mother Teresa of nursing his ego. He is bedside 24 hours a day. He's got cold compresses. He's bringing soup like he is. He is so attentive to his own psychological needs, but has no aptitude for anything else. 
And his team treats it all like a joke, right? They're now selling Sharpies yeah. from the campaign because they think it's funny that our president's a pathological liar. You know, this all flows from the people who were on the, the 2016 campaign, say the day of the Access Hollywood video was this big inflection point. You were either with Trump and the lies and all the awful things he did or you weren't. And it's clear that, like, they just pledge absolute fealty to him and that's all that matters. And, and again, the danger is here. It's not just that, like, you know, I saw it. Tom Perez over the weekend was telling, you know, DNC delegates and people like that, like they don't, we, they, the Democrats don't want to just focus on Trump's awfulness. They want to focus on how he's done a bad job and how his awfulness has actually affected people. And I think that's smart. And in this instance, we can all laugh about how it's fucking like day eight and we're still talking about Sharpie Gate. But like the president's undiagnosed personality disorder here, like has a real impact. Like yeah. there was a story out this morning on CNN um, that the United States extracted one of its top spies from Russia in 2017 because they were worried that Trump would expose the identity to Putin, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like he is putting all kinds of people in danger every time he pulls one of these, he has one of these episodes, he lies like this, he tries to cover up, he goes down the road of being a narcissistic sociopath. Like it is a danger to the country. It is not just him being a goofy asshole that we should all laugh at, you know? I think it's time for a conservative weather channel. I just think <laughs> I'm sick of the. It's where I'm we're headed. I mean, it's not that's not crazy weather. <laughs> he also uh. like just as I'm like working on this outline last night. We're all researching this for today. Like he goes on a tear late last night East Coast time because he watched MSNBC <laughs> and saw like John Legend talking about criminal justice reform and John Legend didn't sufficiently praise Donald Trump. So not only did he attack John Legend, he attacked Chrissy Teigen calling her foul mouth. She didn't even have anything to do with the special. She wasn't involved. So he just basically had a series of tweets where he was attacking black celebrities and journalists for not praising him enough for criminal justice reform. I, I mean, love it. You, you, you joke about a conservative weather channel, but there was a clip going around the internet from OANN, which is the, the news organization that's to the right of Fox News that's even worse. Uh, and there was a clip where someone was referring to NOAA as a notoriously liberal agency, I suppose, because they monitor the fact that the climate is changing. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely where we're going. That is terrifying. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's talk about a, a brand new scandal from the Trump administration oh, that offers yet another example of the president using his public office as a way to get richer all at the expense of us, people mm -hmm. who pay taxes. Uh, on Friday, Politico broke the story that the House Government Oversight and Reform Committee has launched an investigation into whether the Department of Defense is helping Trump's struggling Scottish golf resort stay afloat by having crews stay there when Air Force planes refuel at a nearby airport, even though it's more expensive. Uh, on Sunday night, the Air Force announced it will be conducting an internal investigation into the matter after reporters uncovered additional instances of military personnel staying at Trump properties. Politico reports that at least one service member was frustrated that the food and drink at the Trump resort was over his government allowance. Uh, and this morning, of course, Trump tweeted that none of this has anything to do with him and that the Air Force merely has good taste. Um, <laughs> Tommy, how unusual is what the Air Force did here, and how big of a deal should this be? I, I, it's it's so hard to tell. Like I, I will it's never early in the investigation. I, I'll never <laughs> pretend to understand things like uh, the way the military procures fuel or, or how they have people, you know, spend time different places. It does seem pretty weird that uh, they spent eleven million dollars the military at Prestwick Airport, which is the closest airport to Trump Turnberry. I would assume uh, that there are cheaper places to buy fuel for these planes based on our military's ability to procure like billions of dollars of it at a time. But who knows? There's also reports that the military uh, members are getting discounted rates and free golf at the club. So, you know, a nice I'm little sure they have plenty of time to do. But the club lost four and a half million in 2017, but revenue went up three million in 2018. So, you know, it seems like things are on the up and up. But like the key point, I think, is this is a great example of the fact that Trump is making millions of dollars every single week steering visitors to his D.C. hotel or to rent out spaces for events. I mean, Trump apparently, according to The New York Times, they track this. He's visited a Trump property on 293 days of his presidency. So basically a third of his presidency, he has spent time at one of his resorts. And when he goes and spends time at Mar-a-Lago or Bedford, that means the Secret Service is renting dozens of rooms and golf carts and just pouring money into his pocket. There's all kinds of reporting about the Saudis spending half a million dollars to rent out half of the hotel in D.C. or various grifters going in there. So it's a constant ongoing grift. Yeah. And there are members of Congress 
who had this little process called impeachment that they could use to really dig deep. And they'd just been sitting on their hands for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, you know, there was a great interview with uh, David Fahrenthold, who's a, a reporter at The Washington Post. He was on Fresh Air and it aired over the weekend. And he talked about, you know, all the things he's been doing to uncover uh, this grift. And it's just like, thank God for people like that, because Congress isn't doing shit to figure this out. Love it. What do you think of this story? Oh, I think it's really good. <laughs> great story for the administration. Put that one up on the refrigerator. I think it's great. I, uh, two, two, th- <laughs> two thoughts. One. Love it. Loves golfing. Loves Scotland. This is a good one. I, I, well, two thoughts. One, Trump has never behaved like he has cash. <laughs> yeah. Every, yeah. <laughs> he is constantly behaving like he's about to run out of money. Uh, that was true when he was like, even back in 2016, when he was debating whether to loan rather than give his campaign, I think it was $10 million at the time. Uh, you never get the sense that this is a man sitting on a lot of reserves. Uh, so uh, it seems as though every time he makes his decision to go golfing, it is because they are going to view they they view the presidency as a way to make money. And and what I've said, you know, I've said this before, but I still think it's true. We will know that Donald Trump believes he is no longer going to be president soon when he starts admitting to the fact that he made money on the deal. That he will at some point start to say, "What? I was president for four years. No, never supposed to happen. And look how much money I made on this." Uh, yeah, so yeah. that is coming. That is coming. I mean, yeah. In what I think a New York Times story about the Trump Hotel that ran over the weekend, um, they said that in private, Trump uh, pumps up his properties to people a lot more than he does in public. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, and, and raises it all the time and has concerns about it. Yeah, I mean, but like, okay, think about in 2016 what we were talking about, both in the primary and the general election. Hillary Clinton, after she left public office giving speeches and like not releasing the transcript of the speeches even though she was giving speeches on wall street and making money as a private citizen outside of politics and we still all talked about the optics and there are legitimate concerns around that right but donald trump is in office and the way he's making money while in office while in public office is not just a bunch of private citizens giving him money it's the united states government it's our tax dollars are making him richer like if democrats can't make a fucking issue out of this. I, like, and, let's go home. And here's here's an avenue, John. Uh, the uh, the Trump International Hotel. They lease the old po- post office building in Washington, and that's that's the Trump Hotel. The House Transportation Infrastructure Committee has oversight over that property. So Peter DeFazio, a congressman out of Oregon, could request a whole bunch of documents. For some reason, he has not. Seem, people seem to think it's because he thinks there might be some big infrastructure deal that gets cut with Trump down the road. <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> no, in, in, infrastructure week's right around the corner yeah. as soon as he uh, starts talking about the fucking weather. Infrastructure out. week's yeah, a national joke. We're get the, the documents, DeFazio. Um, well, so the, the <laughs> good the, news. Get the, <laughs> get the documents, <laughs> DeFazio. You son of a bitch. You get those fucking documents. Well, I'm, so, I'm sure he's a great congressman. What are we doing? I mean, the, the good news on the House Democratic front is uh, the New York Times reported over the weekend that the House Democrats are widening their impeachment inquiry to include accusations of corruption against Trump. Just in the uh, nick of time. And they'll be voting on formalized procedures to guide the impeachment inquiry this week, which is good. Um, you know, Congressman Jamie Raskin uh, said the focus needs to be on corruption. Quote, the central sin, the original sin of the Trump administration is the decision to convert the presidency into a money-making operation for the president and his business and his family. Yes. Correct. That is the message. Correct. Listen to Jamie Raskin. That's great. Lean into that. Yeah. I mean, I think, but although, so I'm reading this story, (laughs) as I'm sure you guys did, about how like House Democrats are widening the inquiry to include corruption. I was like, yes, this is what we've been talking about. Great. Wonderful. And then the last paragraph of the story (laughs) says this. With the Republican-controlled Senate highly likely to acquit Mr. Trump, even if the House's case were put to trial, some Democrats have begun raising another possibility, that the Judiciary Committee could draft articles of impeachment, vote them out of the panel, but never bring them to the floor of the House, offering the public an election year indictment of sorts without ever bringing the president to trial. (laughs) I think it's great. I think it's a really cool strategy. I would say one other thing that I would suggest is actually like print it really, really small. So that um, like you need like a magnifying glass to see it. Or maybe you could like release it as an audiobook, but only at a whisper, just at a whisper. Like, do not bother. Please do not bother if that's the path you're going to go down. Like, way to, way to get all of the political risk for impeachment because everyone will say the Democrats impeached Donald Trump. But none of the upside, which is months of hearings where you tell the American public why he's a fucking criminal. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We, people say this all the time. People say this all the time, right? They say, 
Imagine what Republicans would do if Obama did something like this. Rema- mm-hmm. Imagine, ima- we're going to talk about it when we talk about uh, Trump inviting the Taliban for a jamboree right. at Camp David. But, but I, 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 I think it's worth like stopping for a second and thinking like, what does it mean when people say that? Imagine what Demo- imagine what Republicans can do. And sometimes it means. Uh, imagine if Democrats use the same kind of reckless, intellectually dishonest, scorched earth, scorched earth, scorched earth politics of Republicans. And I don't think that's a good idea. But sometimes it just means imagine if Democrats fought as hard for what they believe in as we often see Republicans fighting uh, as we often see how hard Republicans fight for what they believe in. And to me, like this is an example of that. There's just this you just feel this lack of fire in the belly, which is what I think so many Democrats have been have been sort of hungering for. And that's why they knocked on doors in 2018. And then you you see an argument like that. And it's like it's really dispiriting. Yeah. yeah. And this and look, this is the, the corruption part of this. Right. Like I get how tough it is to like, you know, walk people through the whole Mueller report and why Trump is a criminal, what obstruction of justice means, why it matters to your life, all this kind of stuff. I get all that. This corruption angle like put up, ongoing put up a big fucking calculator on a website and say like how much is donald trump costing you how many of your tax dollars did he spend on this add up all the money he's made in the trump organizations like this is not a hard thing to do right like journalists good media outlets are doing this all over the place they have all kinds of charts about this they're adding this up like fucking you know house democrats do something be creative about this. we've learned so much about donald trump and his finances despite all efforts he's made to to prevent that kind of disclosure over the last couple of years and if you think back to say the benghazi hearings because republicans were relentlessly focused on a non-scandal and doing everything they can to get documents and subpoena witnesses they figured out that hillary had this private email address yeah and if not for that dogged unfair, unethical at times effort, they never would have had their number one campaign issue. So why don't we get caught trying? I don't, I, maybe I'm back to being opposed to impeachment. We obviously don't have our shit together to do literally anything, anything. <laughs> this was always my, my, like my opposition to impeachment, which was at like 5% was always rooted in that. Like, yeah, well, but like I, I do want it and I want to see it happen, but you can't fuck it up. I'm just if mad you fuck about it up, it's going to be worse than, worse than if you never did it in the first place. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. 
Well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Okay, let's talk about uh, the uh, the biggest news of the weekend, which was the canceled Taliban slumber party at Camp David. Mm-hmm. Um, the president announced via Twitter in between cat videos that he was calling off peace negotiations with the Taliban, whose leaders he had secretly invited to Camp David, along with the president of Afghanistan, the same week as 9-11. The New York Times reported that the cancellation came after a long-running dispute within the administration about negotiating with the Taliban to end the two-decade war in Afghanistan and disagreement over the deal that was emerging from those negotiations. Tommy, I want to get your reaction to this story, but first, can you give us a primer on uh, what we know about these negotiations, what the goals have been, and what kind of issues need to be resolved? Sure. So we currently have about 14,000 troops in Afghanistan. Uh, Remember that Trump actually had promised in the campaign to end the war in Afghanistan, but actually sent more guys there. So that's important context, I think. Um, It sounds like there was a deal in principle that had been made between uh, Zalmay Khalilzad and the Taliban, negotiated over the course of maybe 10 months or longer, that agreed to pull out 5,400 U.S. troops and close five bases over the course of, say, five months after the deal was agreed to. The goal then was to get the rest of our guys out uh, over the course of a year, maybe a year and a half. But, you know, it's notable that this whole timeline is built around Trump's reelect. The deal was basically we pull out troops, uh, the Taliban cuts ties with al-Qaeda, you help us deal with ISIS, uh, and maybe long, long, long term, it leads to some power sharing agreement with the Taliban over the future of Afghanistan. It's important to note that there was no requirement for the Taliban to stop attacking Afghan civilians or the government or their troops during that period. In none. the deal, in, in any the deal. of the deals. That were no, 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 none of this. So it's weird for the Trump to act like that's what blew up the talks. Um, because that latter question, that latter issue of negotiating with the Afghans themselves is the hard part. It's, it's very easy for the U.S. to make a deal with the Taliban. It's hard for the Afghan government because the Taliban, they don't recognize that they exist. They won't engage them. So that's part of why this Camp David business is so screwed up. Trump is essentially forcing Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, to show up at this made-for-TV spectacle at Camp David so that Trump can triumphantly pretend that he just glued this peace deal together. Meanwhile, Ghani has an election coming up on uh, on the 28th of this month, and the Taliban is like blowing up the capital, killing civilians, and Ghani's getting briefed on this deal. He's not at all happy with it, but his choice is skip this event and be called anti-peace and risk 400 Trump tweets at you or or don't go. So, you know, here we are. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me that Trump uh, actually believes that this suicide attack is what led him to call off negotiations. Everyone knows that the Taliban, they increase their level of attacks while they're negotiating to create leverage. By the way, so do we. Pompeo was on the Sunday shows bragging that we'd killed a thousand Taliban in 10 days. So like, unfortunately, that's the way the war is. But I'll pause there. But like, none of this speaks to the need to have a conversation at Camp David. Well, so yeah, I was going to say like, it, it, I, I can only imagine how difficult these issues are to negotiate with the Taliban, the Afghan government, the US government, we've been probably doing it, trying to do it for years now, yep. right? But it does seem like the deal emerging, which was we pull all of our troops out and we get a sort of vague promise from the Taliban not to, you know, um, allow Al Qaeda to uh, attack us. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't seem like the bet. Like I don't know, does is that a, was that an okay deal if they were able to strike that deal? Because it seems like the killing in Afghanistan continues. I mean, it depends on who you are, right? right? If you're the U.S. government and your concern is an ISIS or Al Qaeda safe haven in Afghanistan, maybe that's the best you're going to get. If you're an Afghan citizen who doesn't want to live under Taliban rule in some parts of the country, it's a horrible deal. But for Trump, he wants the press he got from the Singapore summit. And uh, that diplomacy is a total disaster, by the way, with North Korea. We should talk about some other time. But like, I think we all should be happy that he likes the press he got out of uh, diplomatic you know, events more than, like, say, blowing up uh, Syria. But, uh, you know, like... This was this made no sense. I mean, the the Taliban, as of, I think, a couple of weeks ago, put out a video saying they still supported the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. Um, you know, like there's no need for them to come and like be at this amazing 
you know, piece of the crown jewel of like where the president actually ends up living. And by the way, like we can negotiate with the Taliban in a million places. We've been negotiating with them in Qatar with some of the individuals who were swapped as part of the Bo Bergdahl prisoner swap. Remember when McCain and Graham told us that was the worst thing that's going to ever happen. So like I support peace talks. The the Afghanistan war has gone on longer than World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War combined. But having these guys come to Camp David for a made-for-TV event for Trump for his reelect is craven bullshit. Love it. What did you think of the uh, the wisdom of the stagecraft of having a Camp David meeting with the Taliban the week of nine eleven? I thought it was uh, politically risky at best, John. Uh, <laughs> 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 so two two quick points about this. Because, you know, Tommy, he's got it covered, is uh, one, it's a reminder to how often Trump just says something. This was a case where we learned something via Trump tweet that yeah. was fascinating and important and new and concerning and, and didn't make sense. And then you have to spend the next week trying to figure out what the actual truth is, because everything mm-hmm. he says is fabricated in some way or or uh, uh, self-aggrandizing in some way or just flat out wrong. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, this is what's happened with North Korea. This was what, what he's seeking to do with the Taliban. He doesn't care about exposing the presidency or lowering the presidency to meeting with someone like Kim Jong-un without having done the kind of preliminary work or by inviting the Taliban to Camp David because he doesn't value these institutions. He has no respect for them. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't view the presidency as anything other than a kind of toy for him to play with. So of course he's going to just want to grab onto something and bring bring people uh, uh, to the United States, even though that, that sends a terrible message, even though that elevates people, even though that it, it, it's something you have to, uh, that, that there should be you know, diplomatic work and other work that happens long before anything like that takes place because he just doesn't care about these institutions. It doesn't occur to him to value or protect him. It doesn't occur to him to value or protect anything other than his own personal stake. Yeah. I mean, like we hosted the G7 at Camp David. This is these are a bunch of fucking Taliban goons like they're not foreign heads of state. They're a terrorist group. They were killing U.S. service members this week. And now Trump has blown up this process. Who knows when we'll get back into it? And the Afghans are scared shitless that this is going to lead to a huge surge in violence, uh, especially with the election coming up on the 28th. So uh, this is like. you can say what if this was Obama to so many different things. This is like one of the ultimate what if this was Obama. Well, like, f- of course, Trump attacked Obama in 2012 for having talks with the Taliban. So there's always a tweet. But met, like Pfeiffer was texting us this over the weekend. He was like, if Barack Obama brought the Taliban to Camp David, Fox would need to start immediately another Fox News station just to contain <laughs> all of the attacks on Barack Obama. Why not the Lincoln bedroom? Why not have him at the fucking White House? Like it was, uh, Why go halfway? But like, so the New York Times did a really great TikTok on what you were saying, Love It, trying to like backtrack from his tweet on everything that actually happened. And they updated it, you pointed out, Tommy, late last night with the paragraph that really says it all because they were saying, a fundamental dividing point that was contributing to the collapse of the talks was this. Mr. Trump did not want the Camp David meeting to be a celebration of the deal. After staying out of the details of what has been a delicate effort in a complicated region, Trump wanted to be the dealmaker who would put the final parts together himself, or at least perceived to be. So one of the things that collapsed this whole fucking deal was the fact that Trump wasn't gonna, didn't think he was going to get enough credit for it, even though he didn't deserve the credit for it. He, uh, <laughs> he doesn't, he, it's, he wants to lick the spoon with the batter on it and then say he made a cake. <laughs> I mean, he, he wanted to be Jimmy Carter, like sitting between Sadat and, and, and Began and like bringing these, you know, the sides together. It's just I, I'm, I'm blown away by how crazy this is. Never in a million years did I think Donald Trump would want to bring the Taliban to Camp David. But he is a, you know, he's a uh, reality fucking TV star. And the whole thing is just the whole thing is a show. The whole now thing the, uh, is a show. The next person uh, who hates him, he's trying to get to Camp David is Melania Trump, everybody. <laughs> 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 but seriously, but seriously, he's terrible. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. That's the kind of analysis we crave. <laughs> um, tip tip your right, servers. Well, <laughs> Let's. Uh, you can see more of this at Radio City. Radio City Music Hall. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs>
right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about 2020. Um, as 10 candidates get ready to meet in Houston for a third round of debates on Thursday evening, CBS released a set of early state polls, which we cannot say enough are a lot more useful than national polls, um, that show three front runners and everyone else. You know, a little far behind. Uh, in Iowa, it's Joe Biden at 29%, Bernie Sanders at 26%, and Elizabeth Warren at 17%. New Hampshire is Warren 27, Biden 26, Sanders 25. South Carolina is Biden 43, Sanders 18, Warren 14. And in Nevada, it's Sanders 29, Biden 27, Warren 18. No one else polled in double digits in any of the four states. So, guys, the lead of the CBS story about these numbers is, quote, this poll tells a story about Elizabeth Warren rising, but not Joe Biden falling. Um, Tommy, do you agree with that? And what, is, what does a race look like where those two things are happening? It's a good question. I mean, I, I do think it speaks to something I heard over and over again in Iowa when I was there for a few days was just how hard it is to break through if you're not a top tier candidate, if yeah. you're not seen as part of the national conversation about electability and beating Trump and, and everything else. And I think it also speaks to the fact that Elizabeth Warren is running a good campaign. The conversation about Elizabeth Warren is how she has plans and she's running a good campaign. And that's that's helping her over time. Other people are just not getting a look. I mean, these debates might be, you know, their last chances, potentially, to really do something exciting and and break through. Ultimately, I do think the results in Iowa will be the biggest springboard for whomever does the best to get that last media bounce and do well in New Hampshire and start racking up delegates. But I think it ultimately speaks to a relatively stable race, except for this rise of Warren. Yeah. Love it. What What did you take from it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I, I I think it's worth remembering, too, that we've we've have seen candidates uh, break this kind of hold that Biden, Warren Sanders have in the field. Kamala Harris did it at the last debate. There are still opportunities for candidates to do that. To me, I mean, I think the one of the stories of what's happened is Kamala surged and then wasn't able to maintain that lead. And I think it's worth asking why. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that many stories about Kamala Harris's campaign tend to be about what Kamala Harris's campaign is doing to to fix Kamala Harris's campaign. And that's been sort of a trap that her campaign has been in for a long time, in part because I think she struggled to find an argument a message that stands out from the three being offered, which are pretty cogent at this point, from Biden, Warren, and Sanders. I also think it says something about Elizabeth Warren's challenge going forward. So there's been a lot of there's a lot of talk about lanes in the primary, and a lot of people when they talk about lanes, they think of ideological lanes, and so they think there's a progressive lane and a moderate lane. But the truth is, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders um, draw their support disproportionately from non-college-educated white voters, um, younger uh, non-college-educated white voters, and also um, non-college-educated black voters and Latino voters, and and in Joe Biden's case, black voters in total. And it does seem at times like, when you look into dig into some of these numbers, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and even Cory Booker and Beto O'Rourke and some of the other candidates are all fighting over a lot of college-educated white progressives. And these polls sort of show that Elizabeth Warren is winning that fight. She's sort of, a lot of these people, you know, it shows that these polls show that people who were supporting Harris before have moved to Warren. She's getting support from some of the other lower-tier candidates who are losing support. They're all going to Warren now. So she's consolidating a lot of the college-educated white liberals uh, vote. But the question is, if she wants to beat Biden, beat Sanders... She's got to break into she's got to start doing better with non-college educated white voters and black voters and Latino voters better than she's doing. And the question there is, are these voters just not into her yet or are they not closely engaged in the race yet? Because we know that the most engaged voters right now are these college educated white liberals. And so that's the question that we can't answer yet. Um, I also thought, like, do you you guys look at these polls and think that maybe people have been underestimating Bernie Sanders' strength as he's hanging in there and all these polls first or second in most of these states? It's a good question. I mean, to me, Bernie's sort of ability to stick it out probably speaks a lot to name identification and comfort level with him. I mean, 
Biden, for all the, the criticisms you see of him and policies and previously held positions and gaffes and all this crap that sort of swirls on Twitter every day, most people just know that he's a, a popular vice president for a popular two-term president yeah. who they've seen on the national stage for eight years and think like, oh, that guy looks like a president because they saw him in the White House for eight years. Bernie Sanders is someone that was pretty well introduced to the country in 2016. I think unless you are a, a hardcore Hillary Clinton supporter, you probably have a relatively favorable impression of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, I think that he needs to do more to make inroads with the folks who were ride or die for Hillary, and I'm not sure that they have achieved that quite yet. Uh, but, you know, P Bernie comes off as likable and charming and consistent. So, you know, I think that's probably what people know of him. Yeah, and there also, there is a progressive, I mean, I, I just said that there was a sort of a lane of college-educated versus non-college-educated voters. There's also, a, he's fighting Elizabeth Warren for progressive voters. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they both are fighting each other for that, for the, the most progressive voters. Love it, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, the thing I would add is, you know, Bernie, in part, you know, Bernie was uh, captured a larger share of the electorate when he was facing just Hillary Clinton. So one question I'd have is, where are the people who supported Bernie before? Uh, where did they go? And I would imagine many of them went to Elizabeth Warren and some to other candidates. But there is a kind of, yeah, a, an ideological alignment between Warren and uh, uh, Bernie that I think is a challenge for both of those campaigns. Yeah. I also think it shows that like none of the candidates have really figured out how to peel away some of Joe Biden's support that the that the focus on and it's not it's not really just a candidate focus because it's really sort of a media focus and sort of some of the surrogates and the campaign staff and all that kind of stuff but a lot of focus on his gaffes a lot of focus on is he losing a step a lot of focus on you know is he sufficiently progressive enough and i think at some point it's time for some of these candidates to realize that those lines of attack on Biden are not really having an effect and that if you want to start peeling away Biden's support, you're going to have to find another argument. Yeah, I mean, certainly it was true that Kamala Harris was able to, I think, do a number on Biden at that first debate. I think that some of the attacks on Biden at the second debate backfired yeah. and that it might have. I mean, I heard this anecdotally, but that a lot of the criticisms people heard came off as nitpicking or too negative or unfair in some way. I'm not saying I agree with those descriptions, but those are just some of the things I heard from various people. So, yeah, I mean, I do think they're going to need a more effective way to go after him. Maybe as folks pay attention uh, more closely in the fall, like people will just think harder about what they want of the next president and who they think can win. I still think this electability question is is all-consuming for most voters in early states. Yeah, and I think that the other candidates have to make a case for their own electability, and I think that they can. I think each one of them has a good argument about yep. why they're the most electable candidate, and some of them are different. Um, I also think, like, you know, this debate that's coming up this week, like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and some of the others do sort of have to figure out a way to differentiate themselves from these three front runners. Mm -hmm. um, Buttigieg sort of gave a hint of that over the weekend uh, in New Hampshire. He said, we need ideas big enough to meet this moment, but it's not enough to think up good policy. We've got to unify Americans around these solutions or nothing will actually get done. It's why I'm not making uh, some of the promises that some of the candidates to my left are. I share the goals and believe that we can do it in a way that will bring Americans together. What do you guys think of that? That's interesting because that's not... Pete Buttigieg thinking, I need to take down Biden. That's him thinking, I need to differentiate myself from Sanders and Warren. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's saying we need an alternative to Biden, right? Which I think has actually been motivating right. a number of candidates. I think it's actually why a number of candidates have been staying in the race um, from Michael Bennett to Buttigieg and others. There's a, there's a kind of, you know, under <laughs> an unspoken aspect to all of this, which is we don't really know if Biden is the Trump of this race, the person who may not have a majority, but will have a strong plurality that carries them to the nomination. And because everyone else is kind of divided, no one becomes an alternative and Biden gets the nomination. Or is he more like a Jeb, who is someone who has garnered a lot of establishment support and uh, 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 some money and some some talent, but ultimately doesn't have what it takes to win the nomination. And I think there are a bunch of candidates who are looking at Joe Biden and saying, I'm going to bet on this candidacy being softer than it looks. And that that 30% at some point becomes 25, becomes 20, becomes 15. And all of a sudden, people are deciding between Warren and an alternative, whoever that may be. 
Yeah, it was a it was a subtle contrast, and it was interesting departure from a purely generational contrast. Although yeah. that was probably infused in the speech, and frankly, just seeing Pete on stage with some of these candidates makes the generational contrast more than anything he could actually say. The thing to watch with Pete is um, he's got money, yeah, and he's investing it in early states. And when I saw him at the state fair, he had a big ass crowd on a Tuesday, and now he's opened like a dozen more offices, and he's up on TV early. And so, look, anything can happen in these races. I mean, we all remember 2004 when Howard Dean was going to be the nominee and it was a runaway effort. And then there was essentially this just negative, you know, murder suicide between him and Dick Gephardt in the closing days before Iowa. And then John Kerry and John Edwards emerged. So, like, there's a million different ways it could play out. But I would feel pretty good if I were Pete and I had resources. I wouldn't feel great about the fact that my the, the surge I'd seen in the polls, relative surge, uh, has dipped a little bit. Yeah, and I think for him, if you're going to make this case, that it's it's fair to make it, but you got to go all the way. You don't have to like whack everyone else on stage, yeah. but you got to get into the details. You cause, because spell it out. Really, what he's talking about is you know he's for Medicare for all who want it, as opposed to Medicare for all. So that is a real difference that he has with Warren and Sanders that he could talk about a lot at this debate. Um, on some of the other issues, it's not as clear. You know, he's he's pretty much taken a lot of the progressive positions. He has sort of talked about how he cares more about the deficit than some other Democrats, too. So maybe he makes that case. Um, But I think the last two debates he had, he's had some pretty good debates and he's been pretty solid. But he has been reluctant to draw differences between him and the other candidates on stage. And he probably has to do that on Thursday uh, and still do it in a way that is respectful and true to himself right because that's the kind of campaign he's running so that should be interesting to watch and it should be interesting to watch what kamala harris does too because you know her she said her message over the weekend was you know there's so much more that unites us than divides us which is not really a message about differentiating yourself too much from everyone else but is trying to be the person who says okay enough of all this like infighting we should all sort of take on donald trump together because more unifies us which is an interesting message but also different from how she was with Biden in previous debates. So mm-hmm. that's sort of interesting to watch mm-hmm. too. Yeah, it's also like that that it's um it's like partially rhetorical. I mean it's a, it's a it's a rhetorical argument which I don't think actually has much value and I don't, you know, in in Pete's ad he talks about how we need solutions and again it's like I don't know. I, whenever now, I, maybe it's because I still carry some uh, emotional baggage from 2008. <laughs> but whenever someone says like we need solutions, I just see I know, I know, a poll document that makes me think somebody they want solutions. They don't want partisanship. And so I'm going to start saying that. But with, yep. with Kamala, you know, I think that there is this opening, right, which I, which she seems sort of like half willing to take, which is, all right, so you like Warren and you like Bernie because they're further to the left and they're, they have a big argument for structural change that we need in this country. And you agree with that. But then you look at someone like Joe Biden and you see polls that show that he he is doing better against Trump in some key swing states, and you're terrified of losing. You're terrified of what's going to happen to the country if we don't put up the right candidate. And so, so you're torn because you want big liberal ideas, but you want to win more than anything, and you don't know how to sort through this. Well, here I am, someone who's going to kind of split the difference. And maybe there's a maybe there's a compelling way to make that argument. I don't know, but I'm still it all. It just so it just feels like we're still you know I don't know dancing around that specific case. I just think that the 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 message that's going to resonate in Iowa especially is going to be about how you're the person who can beat Donald Trump. And I think And why? To the extent that folks are 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 making cases where they're sort of obliquely criticizing policy ideas as too big or too small or too destructive, I just kind of think you're missing the boat. Like of course people care about policy, like the healthcare debate is is fundamental and existential for a lot of people. But all of them are resigned to the fact that it is irrelevant what your plan says if you don't win. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, when we come back, um, my interview with Adi Barkin. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. 
Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. On the pod today, uh, we are very happy to welcome back our good friend, Adi Barkin. Adi, um, how are you feeling? I know you were... Uh, you went had to go to the hospital a few times last uh, over the last week, uh, and you're back home now. So how are you feeling? Thank you for having me and for asking. I'm feeling better, but my body is continually declining. I'm going to need a pretty big surgery soon to keep breathing and around the clock here. Heady times in our household. Well, uh, it's it's good that you will uh, will have to will go get that if uh, if that's what's needed. But uh, I know. I know that can't be fun, um, but we are uh, we're very glad that you're that you're with us today, uh, and especially this week. Um, you know, recently you just launched Uncovered, a video series where you sat down with uh, Democratic candidates for president to talk about health care. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about health care in debates and town halls. There's going to be a lot more. What did you want to highlight in Uncovered that you feel people aren't getting from all the other discussions of health care that we've been having in the primary? Well, there definitely has been discussion of health care. This is one of the most important issues on the minds of Democrats and Americans generally. Which makes sense, because it's a life and death issue for the tens of millions without any insurance in this country, and for the people who are cutting their pills in half because the cost of prescription drugs is spiraling out of control. But, let's be honest. The discussion kind of sucks. You've got these massive debates filled with centrist white dudes running vanity campaigns. You've got moderators from the corporate media asking questions fed to them by Republican strategists and insurance lobbyists. And the actual top-tier candidates are getting 30 or 60 seconds to answer big hard questions about rebuilding our nation's health care system. So, I figured we could do better than that, and have some wonky conversations grounded in real human experience. I wanted to ask about their perspectives on health insurance and also on political strategy and tactics. How were they going to actually affect change? I wanted to push them from the left, which never happens in the televised debates, because it is not like they're letting Amy Goodman moderate. I figured that I would be able to drill down over a 60-minute interview in a way that simply cannot be done on live TV. I also wanted to talk about other elements of the healthcare system. Funding for basic medical research. Addressing the opioid epidemic and the war on drugs. But, you know John, I'm an egomaniac and total media whore. So the main reason I wanted to do this was for the attention and book promotion. Let's be <laughs> frank. That's that is exactly how I've always known you, Adi. Is an is an egomaniac star for attention. Um, well, so you interviewed several candidates who do not support Bernie's Medicare for All bill. Did you find any of their arguments persuasive? And and why do you what what sense did you get of why they're resistant to Medicare for All? Do you think it's a a genuine concern for pragmatism? Do you think it's politics that they're worried about? Do you think it's policy? Where, where do you think it comes from? Kamala was more persuasive than I expected, honestly. That episode drops tomorrow. But that was partially because I'm fucking paralyzed and it takes me forever to write responses, so I sometimes had trouble drilling down on how her plan will actually work. But she is obviously a brilliant politician and is right that people like being told they have options. But let me tell you a story about the absurdity of this debate. My wife Rachel is seven months pregnant with our second baby, due in mid-November. A few days ago, she got a letter from our private health insurance company saying that she needs to find a new OBGYN because hers will be out of network starting November 3rd. You couldn't script it more evil. And people are worried that Medicare for all is going to make us lose our doctors. 
you will be shocked to hear no one convinced me that Medicare for all is not the right approach. The thing I kept hearing from those who disagreed with me was that the American people wouldn't be okay with Medicare for all in one fell swoop, because it's too much of a radical departure from the status quo, without the intermediate step of a public option. That some people actually do like their health insurance policies. That does not ring true to me, because I believe people like their doctors, not Aetna or Blue Cross, and I have yet to hear a convincing argument to dissuade me. I really hope they expand their sense of what's possible, because Americans have embraced big changes to the status quo before, like the creation of Social Security and Medicare. Regardless, I will say this, John, I really appreciated that so many candidates had the courage to agree to sit down with me, even when they knew we disagree about the policy. It's disappointing and deeply troubling that Vice President Biden joins hasn't agreed. Especially when we know he has such a powerful personal story to tell about his own family's experience with the healthcare system. If he can't handle questions from a paralyzed father, how is he going to stand up to the slaps and attacks from Donald Trump? He's gonna get his ass hooped, and American democracy will go down the drain, unless he steps up fast. Yeah, you and me both, man. We've been trying to get him on the pod, too, and he won't, uh, he won't come talk to us either. But you're right, he does have... Uh, he does have a powerful personal story to tell about this. He's been he talked about it in ads. And look, I think first of all, I also have to say because uh, you just slipped it in there. Congratulations to you and Rachel <laughs> that uh, Carl's going to have a sibling. How how by the way, how does Carl uh, feel about this? Is he does he does he understand what's going on? Does he has he said anything about uh, Rachel being pregnant? He is excited. Wants to name her table was giving some precious belly cuddles yesterday. But I don't think that he has any clue what he is in for. Well, I'm excited for him and excited for you guys. Um, la- so last question on on um, health care and these interviews and Medicare for all. I mean, what? obviously there is a, you know, one of the things that advocates for Medicare for all and activists are dealing with is that voters and people that we have to persuade sort of have set opinions about healthcare. a lot of it based on, you know, some misinformation that's out there, whether it's inaccurate reporting in the media, whether it's Republican talking points, insurance industry talking points. Like, what do you what do you say to someone who looks at Medicare for all and says, okay, I love the idea that everything is covered, um, that I don't have to worry about private insurance screwing me over anymore, um, that my healthcare is finally going to be affordable. I like all that, but I'm sort of worried, you know, what happens when um, it's the government who I don't trust that much, especially now that Donald Trump's in charge. What if, what if there's another Republican president crazy like Donald Trump and the government is the only entity that's deciding what the insurance they offer covers and, and, and what it doesn't, you know, should we have that, should we give up that much control to the government, especially if it's a government like Trump's that I don't agree with. And then the other thing is, okay, well, I'm going to save all this money, which is wonderful, but are my taxes going to go up? And what if what if my taxes go up by more than I pay for healthcare? What happens then? So those are the only two concerns that I could imagine, like real people having, not sort of scared politicians, but actual people who are thinking about whether this is the right move for the country. That's a good question. I think on the first, we already see how much damage Trump can do to the private system. Tens of millions impacted by his bullshit. But Medicare and Social Security have actually been pretty safe, because of their popularity. So the key is to have a great program that is politically untouchable. I think we can get there. On number two, I think we just need progressive taxation to replace the absurdly regressive cost of our current model. And we need a nominee who can lay that out persuasively. So last question about um, your Uncovered series. Did anyone or anything surprise you? Uh, Did you learn anything new from these interviews? Yeah. I learned that Cory Booker is a world-class politician. (laughs) So ridiculously smooth and smart, able to shift gears, intonations, registers. I left that interview feeling like he had run circles around me, furious at my ALS for depriving me of the ability to go toe-to-toe, resigned to pecking out my text letter by letter. In my youth, John, 
three years ago, I could have been a contender. It was fun to talk sports with Bernie, although Homeboy still refuses to open up about his family and illness. It's very weird. Elizabeth Warren has magnificent interpersonal skills. I have witnessed it before when we've met, but she did one of those selfie lines in my living room for all my friends and neighbors. She has Bill Clinton-level charm up close, without the penchant for sexual harassment. She's got Obama's management chops and intellectual firepower, and she has a race-slash-class analysis and policy agenda straight out of Jesse Jackson's 1988 Rainbow Coalition campaign. Pretty potent stuff. But I'm voting for John Delaney in the primary. He's the most electable. You know, I uh, I would have thought that you were a Steve Bullock guy, but uh, you know, Delaney Delaney works too. I, I have to say, Addy, too, like you know, when when uh, Warren came here uh, early on in the primary for interview, it was the same way. She was so unbelievably charismatic, so much energy, bouncing around the office, talking to everyone, shaking every hand. Just, um, I think she probably people underestimate. Um, they, you know, they talk about her as a policy wonk who can run circles around anyone, but I think they underestimate her charisma when you, um, when you meet her in, in, uh, in person because it's, uh, it's something. Um, okay. So, uh, your memoir eyes to the wind is being released this week, uh, Tuesday, September 10th. Um, I am a enormous fan of this book, read it a couple months ago, laughed, cried, was incredibly inspired. I want every single person to read it. Um, Why did you decide to write this book? Thank you. Means a lot coming from you. I wrote it as an ode to collective action and civic engagement, and as a call to action. I wanted people to know how much our country needs them to get involved right now, and also how much people have to gain personally from getting involved in the struggle for justice. I wanted to put together a record of my life for friends and family. But mostly, I wanted to leave behind a letter of sorts for Carl and his sister. I really want them to be proud of me. And, and what lessons do you hope people take away from it? There are times, especially these days, when the state of things in our country seem impossibly bleak. Whether it's the climate crisis or voting rights or police violence or corporate capture of our courts, we have immense, structural problems that often feel beyond the pale. But the truth is that despair is not the answer, and we have never needed people to get involved more. Not only because it is the only way out of our current national nightmare, but because I deeply believe people have a lot to gain from becoming politically engaged. Joining the movement has given me such a strong sense of purpose, and such a community of caring people, that it's even lessened the burden of this terrible disease. I know a lot of people across the country would come to benefit from activism, as they serve the twin purpose of making our nation more fair and just. So, you know, one of the things you've written is that, which I really loved, is um, that the wisdom to know the difference between what we can and cannot change can only be earned through struggle. Can you talk about how you came to that conclusion? Through a lot of tears, conversations with friends and family, some reading, and late, late nights, stoned in my recliner, trying to figure out what the hell to do with myself in the face of ALS and Donald Trump. This is one of the central themes that I explore in the memoir, and I don't want to scoop myself. All you friends of the pod out there, go ahead, press pause, buy the book right now, and get me up that best-selling list. John Favreau will personally refund your purchase if you don't love the book. <laughs> and if you prefer audiobooks, which you probably do, guess who is reading it? Josh fucking Lyman himself. <laughs> the mellifluous Bradley Whitford. No joke. <laughs> I, I have made that promise. Uh, just let me know. Just send me back the book if you're not happy. And within a few days, I'll turn around the refund. That is, a, that is the promise that I have made. Um, so, you know, you were just talking about sort of how you came to this wisdom through sort of a, a lot of conversation with friends, through sitting in your recliner. I mean, so much of what you write about in the uh, in the memoir sort of explores the tension between the uh, the acceptance of a terminal illness and the push of activists 
to never accept the world as it is. So it is this sort of tension. How have you learned to deal with that tension? Which, and I imagine it's a process that is ongoing. Definitely ongoing and difficult. I have come to understand the difference this way. I can do nothing to change the fact of my terminal illness. There is no cure for ALS right now, and there is nothing I can do to stop my rapid neurological decay. To flail against it helplessly would only cause me additional grief and suffering, so the only thing I can do is accept it. That isn't true about the healthcare crisis in this country, or systemic racism, or the climate emergency barreling towards our shorelines every day. Resisting those challenges, whether by marching, or voting, or petitioning, that's the only way to solve the most pressing problems facing our society. And that is why I'm doing everything I can, even as paralysis grips more of my body every day. Struggling for justice is a fruitful endeavor. It even makes my ALS more tolerable. Uh, my last question, Adi, what piece of advice would you give to someone who's newly active in politics and social justice work, who's sort of facing a world that seems very fucked up, <laughs> Donald Trump's president, maybe they're, they want to help and they're eager, but they're a little worried that they'll, maybe they won't be able to make a difference. Maybe this work is too hard. Maybe they're going to face all these setbacks and disappointments. What, what advice do you have for, the, for that person as someone who has been through so much and, and fought so hard? I think two things. First, we have no idea what the future holds. That's the lesson of Trump, the lesson of my ALS. So don't despair or give up prematurely. We really cannot predict next year, let alone next decade. Second, I think Sarah Palin or another feminist icon put it best. Never misunderestimate how much difference a small group of dedicated people can make. It really is our Congress, our democracy, our future for the making. Adi, wise words as always. Um, and I, I, do, I do believe that was a direct quote from Sarah Palin. Um, thank you. Thank you so much as always for joining us. Um, everyone, go watch Uncovered, uh, Adi's video series. Uh, which you can get it, you can see at our site too, cricket.com slash be a hero. And most importantly, please go buy the book, Eyes to the Wind. Uh, you can go to beaherofund.com, Adi's website. They're selling it there. You can go to Adi's Twitter, at Adi Barkin. There's a link there as well. And um, Adi, we love you very much. Uh, give Rachel our love and give uh, give Carl a hug for us too. And, uh, and, and take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for your friendship and your work, John. You're an American patriot. God bless you. God bless America. And God save the pod. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to Adi for joining us. And uh, we will see you uh, at our post-debate show on Friday and uh, and then, you know, you can uh, you can see Love It Friday night at Radio City. Damn right you can. And thanks to the DNC for making this thing one night. Watching two yes. of these in a week was, it was annoying. It was a lot. Well, we'll go back to it in October. I, we forgot to yes. say that fucking Tom Steyer made the debate in October. So. Tom, you did it. Two debates. <laughs> you got yourself a second debate. What a system. Good for you. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm excited to see it. <laughs> same, same. All right, everyone. See you later. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Conian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.